0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, please sit down. As you sit down, if you could be turning back uh, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. that uh, was read to us a little earlier, page 1245 in the Church Bibles. And uh, in among the pieces of paper you were given on the way in, uh, you should fi- find a handout to follow, uh, which looks a little bit like this. And uh, you can use that to follow where we are and to make notes if you would like. And you can see from the top of that handout that I've given this sermon a 15 rating uh, for sexual content and violence. Now, that's not just because I especially want to give you a shocking sermon this morning. Uh, but you'll have already picked up from our reading this morning that this chapter contains some disturbing and shocking imagery. It's interesting, when we had it read to us, I wondered if there was a slight hesitation in saying, thanks be to God, at the end. If you're here with the baptism party, you might have wondered in, uh, thinking what on earth have we come to uh, this morning. But I'm going to do my very best not to exaggerate any of that imagery, but you do need to be warned that if I'm, going to, if I'm going to preach this chapter faithfully this morning, then it may well be quite unsettling. Indeed, it should be quite unsettling. But rather than begin in the very strange visionary world of Revelation chapter 17, I want to be- begin somewhere closer to home and apparent, apparently more comfortable. I want to begin with our everyday lives here in Fulwood and how easy it is as Christians in Fulwood to slip into compromise of one sort or another at work for example let's imagine uh, that we're getting on with our work uh, you know going reasonably well in our careers uh, but we start to realize as we're doing that, that that it 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 might well ease some of the difficulties of life to do certain things it becomes obvious for example that if we keep quiet about jesus then our careers are going to progress much more smoothly Otherwise, uh, I'll talk, take another example, a related example. Suppose I'm already over investing my time in certain things to the expense of my family and church family. Well, I might well find myself starting to rationalize that. Uh, once I've done this, this thing that I'm focused on at the moment, I tell myself, once I've progressed thus far in my career, well, you know, then we'll be comfortable. And at that point, I can start loving my family. Then I can start serving at church. Uh, Or beyond work, perhaps we have um, impressive, uh, successful friends and we meet from time to time. We think to ourselves as we do that, why can't I have some of that? You know, alongside all this Christian stuff that I'm involved in, why can't I have both? Or perhaps there's someone of the opposite sex that we know. Uh, whom we find more engaging if we're married, more engaging and rewarding to talk to than our spouse. You know, we know as we're, we're, we're talking to them that we, we shouldn't let it run too far, but we still wonder: I wonder how far. And this danger of compromise is, not, is something we face not just as not just as individuals within the church family, but corporately as a church family. You'll know, I'm sure, that churches all around us seem to be bending over backwards to accommodate themselves to the changing views and values of our culture and doing that on a whole raft of of different issues. And the result is a kind of counterfeit Christianity that does indeed cause less offence to people. And we're under severe pressure, strong pressure, to go along with that. And you need to know that that is increasing pressure at the moment. And there is no doubt that life would be easier and more comfortable for us if we did go along with that. There are times when that seems a very, very attractive option. Well, I want to show you this morning that Revelation chapter 17 speaks very powerfully into all those kinds of moments. Uh, But to help us to prepare to see that, uh, I think it's going to help to to, to delay looking at the detail of the chapter and to step back for a moment to to look at the big picture of the book of Revelation as a whole. After all, as you've picked up already, the the, the imagery of Revelation is easy to get a little lost in. Uh, But when we step back, we can see that the vision is, is setting out for us what turns out in the end at least to be a relatively simple pattern. It's a pattern which shows us uh, two sides of a battle and two futures. And this is what I've tried to show in that table on the first side of the handout. What we've got there on that, in that table is that on the, on the one side, on, the, on one side we have the components of God's kingdom, God's rule. And then on the other we have Satan's opposing, counterfeit kingdom. So, for example, on the left-hand side, working down from the beginning of John's vision, we've got the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb who was slain. We were introduced to these uh, these characters in chapters 4 and 5. They are central to the vision. That's helpful to know that later on, right at the end of the vision, we're going to be introduced to those other two characters there. the, The Bride of the Lamb and this place, the New Jerusalem the bride of the Lamb is going to represent God's faithful people, those who have to the end, those whom he will take to be with him in an eternally joyful relationship in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. That's, that's all down the left-hand side there. But on the right-hand side, there's a counterfeit kingdom. Back in chapter 12, we were introduced to the dragon or the serpent, a a figure who turned out on inspection to be Satan, the great deceiver and liar, who has set himself up against God and desperately, more than anything else, wants to destroy God's people. And to destroy God's people, the dragon has at his disposal the beast with a wound, which we saw at work back in chapter 13. And you can see very clearly in that arrangement that the beast with a wound is a counterfeit version of the lamb who was slain. We've also, at this point in the vision, already been introduced to the place where the beast attacks and kills God's people. uh, The place that's been called so far the great city. This is the territory, the stronghold, if you like, of God's enemies, much as Babylon was in, in Old Testament times. Uh, which is why it gets given this na- it's given that name here. Many other cities have been before and since. And then we get the, the final missing piece on the right-hand side, uh, what we're going to be looking at today from Revelation chapter 17, the whore or prostitute riding on the beast. That's what we've had read to us from this chapter. So in a way, that's a Revelation in, in, a, in a nutshell. And uh, seeing the world with the help of this vision is then like putting on what you might imagine as special glasses, spiritual glasses, visionary glasses. These are glasses which transform the kind of greys we see in our world where we're not quite sure what to make of, show them to be clear blacks and whites. We see much more clearly what is anti-God lined up with the right-hand side of that table and what is pro-God lined up with the left But these are glasses that not only make that division for us, they also do something else. They bring the future closer to us. They bring the future into the present for us. They show us that everything on the left-hand side, however fragile things may seem in the present, will be absolutely secure in the end. And they show us that everything on the right-hand side, however powerful and secure they may seem in the present, will ultimately be swept entirely away swept away in its own self-destruction or by the mighty final justice of God. And all these things then work together to help to keep us faithful to God's kingdom, enduring suffering and witnessing to the Lord Jesus as we wait for the end. But why in particular are we being shown what we've been shown in chapter 17? Why are we being shown this, this prostitute, this whore and her destruction, in Revelation 17. Well, with those two sides right in front of us. I think we can see, see straight away. That the whore riding on the beast. Is the alternative. The alternative. To remaining faithful. As the bride of Christ. You see what's going on here. Is, as elsewhere in the Bible. Is that the vision is using. Concepts of sexual fidelity and infidelity. To teach us about spiritual faithfulness. And unfaithfulness. In other words, even before we look at the detail of this chapter, we can already see that Jesus is basically saying to us, don't play the whore. Don't play the whore in your life. Remain faithful as a bride. This is what the strong language of Revelation 17 is going to be screaming out at us this morning. Don't be seduced by her. Don't become a part of what she is doing. Stick with the lamb. I hope we're going to see this morning that the only safe place, in fact, the only safe verse in Revelation chapter 17 is verse 14 of the chapter. Sticking with the lamb. Sharing in his victory as those who are called, chosen, and faithful. So that's the big picture, I think that helps us to see roughly where we're going to be going this morning. But how does the the detail help with that? that? How does the chapter work to bring that about in us? Well, the chapter would seem to fall into two parts. So first in verses 1 to 6, there's an angel showing John this shocking vision of of a whore riding on a beast. And then in the rest of the chapter, there's some wisdom from the angel to help John in his astonishment to understand what he's seen. Let's begin with those first six verses under the heading, shocked into remaining faithful. Now imagine this. Imagine you've just been shown in advance the judgment of the world. This is what we've been shown in uh, chapter 16 of Revelation. You've seen it in seven shocking stages, ending with the wrath of God poured out on Babylon the Great, this city that represents Uh, the stronghold of all God's enemies. And you might think, you might well think that that was more than enough for anyone to see. But now one of the angels who's been showing you all of that says this. He says, you need to see more. In fact, you need to see that again. You need to see exactly what it is that God is going to bring to judgment and destruction. Well, that's uh, John's position in verse 1 of chapter 17. Come, says one of the angels, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the notorious whore. Now look at uh, verses 3 to 6 with me. John is taken into a wilderness place where he sees a woman. She's sitting on the bizarre seven-headed beast we were first met back in chapter 13. It's, a, it's the one who is bent on conquering and overcoming the people of God. Now it is coloured scarlet, the colour of war, and covered in blasphemous claims to be God. Uh, the woman is dressed in scarlet too, as, as well as this expensive purple and glittering jewellery. It's a bizarre sight, but it's also... We would have to say, quite impressive. Uh, she has an expensive cup in her hand filled with, well, we dare not look. Uh, presumably this is the, the wine of her adultery, as mentioned back in verse 2. Whatever, in other words, it's whatever she is using to seduce and intoxicate the kings and the people of the earth. But you can see that she's also not hiding her identity in this vision. You can see that in verse 5 verse 5, where on her forehead is this label. It's rather like the label you might get in a political cartoon. It shows, it shows us what she represents, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. She is, a, in other words, another way of representing the, the anti-God city that we've seen before. But she also represents all the anti-God faithlessness and spiritual adultery in the world. And then John sees one last thing. You see, she is getting the people of the world drunk on adultery with her. But she herself is drunk on something else. Verse 6. She is drunk on the, pe- on the blood of God's people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So even before going into the details of that, I think we can pick up the big big idea. In the, in the book of Revelation, this, this great city, the city of Babylon, is, is a way of representing a, a space where the enemies of God feel they can live apart from him, where they feel they can exercise their opposition to him. It, it's enemy territory, if you like, uh, and um, it's where the enemies of God feel they're, they're free to attack and kill at will God's people. Or well, the whore upon a, bee- on the, upon a beast is a different way of representing the same opposition and rivalry to God. But this time the image emphasises the seductive, almost sexual pull of unfaithfulness to God. And it exposes for us in a, in a quite shocking way how easily the people of the world are attracted by her superficial promise of drunken pleasure. The details in the vision then reinforce that. We were told back in chapter 13 that this beast has extraordinary economic power, which it only shares with those who bear its mark. We can see in the detail there uh, her fine clothing and jewellery. We can see that the woman is enjoying the temporary prosperity that comes from submitting to the beast's rule. We were also told back in chapter 13 about the beast's intention to overcome and conquer and kill God's people, those opening, witnessing openly to Jesus. Well, as we've already seen verse 6, she, we see her participating in that too, even enjoying it as she gets drunk on the blood of the saints. And John, uh, not surprisingly, verse seven, end of verse 6, is astonished. I wonder, does that mean that he's just surprised by this, or or whether he's puzzled, understandably puzzled, or whether he's shocked? Probably all of those things rolled in together. He doesn't know what to make of it. And I suppose that should be our reaction too. Surprised, somewhat puzzled, wanting a few more answers, and certainly shocked. As I said before, this is not the only place in the Bible where God uses graphic sexual imagery to grab our attention so that he can illustrate what spiritual unfaithfulness to him really looks like. The fact that he has to do so on occasion should show us just how serious that danger is and and how how slow we are very often to, to begin to see it. So if you found the imagery here obsessing, and offensive. Then, in some respects, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But in other respects, I think, good. By all means, be offended and shocked by this. That's the whole point. Uh, you see, we might have thought that our dealings with the culture around us were relatively innocent and harmless. But this vision is showing us that we have to think again. And God is shocking us. Into seeing exactly what it is we're slipping into. This is what getting into bed with the world really looks like. But it's no good just being shocked. Uh, we also need to be as clear as we can on exactly what the woman is doing. And where it's going to lead her. And that's where the, the rest of the chapter is going to help us. And this is our, our next heading. This is all about wisdom wisdom to remain faithful as the angel says in verse 9 this calls for a mind with wisdom indeed you can see in verse 7 that the angel doesn't want to leave John merely astonished that is not enough so the angel says I will explain to you the mystery the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides which has seven heads and ten horns now, we might summarize what the angel goes on to, to, to say as basically this, that basically that the, the, what the woman is doing is riding on, riding on the worldwide enemies of the all-conquering lamb, but that eventually those enemies are going to turn on her and destroy her. But within that, the angel highlights, I think, five things, five things that John really must understand from this vision. You must understand first, says the angel, that the beast is a false god, a counterfeit deity. You may remember that elsewhere in Revelation, that the Lord God Almighty is, de- is described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Well, look at uh, verse 8 with me. Two times the beast is described as the one who uh, once was, now is not, and will come. It's different. Sure, it's different, but it's sufficiently similar to deceive people. It explains, I guess, why the, the, the people hold the beast in such awe. But make sure, says the angel, make sure you're not among those people. Make sure you're not among those people who, when too late they see what the beast for what he really is, will be kicking themselves. They'll be astonished that they were so easily deceived. Make sure you are not among those people. And you must understand, second, second, says the angel, that the beast's influence is spread over every seat of power and every ruler of the earth. We've seen before in Revelation that the number seven is the number of completeness, and this beast has seven heads. And the seven heads, says the angel, are seven hills or mountains but it's probably not, in fact, a reference to to Rome, uh, with its seven hills, or or to Sheffield, for that matter. Uh, More likely, a mountain here represents a seat of human power. A seat of human power in this context, which is set up against God and in place of God. So in seven mountains, we have the entirety of such human power spread across the earth. Indeed, verse 10, we may... Equally well, think of seven kings, with the beast itself being an eighth king, mimicking the worldwide authority of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of lords and king of kings. In other words, putting that all together, what we're being shown here is is the scope of the influence of the beast, and it is really quite frightening and extensive. It turns out, putting all that together, that it's not that we can divide the nations of the earth or the governments of the earth into the good guys and the bad guys, as we sometimes like to do. What we're being shown here is the influence of the beast, the anti-God influence of the beast, infects every human power. You must understand third, says the angel, that every future earthly kingdom will also be under the power and influence of the beast. Verse 12, there are future kings, future kingdoms, who haven't yet got authority, but they will have authority for a short time. But they too are going to be under the influence of the beast. But then you must understand. Fourthly, says the angel, that although this is frightening, although this seems unimaginably extensive, this apparently unstoppable coalition of powers is stoppable and it will be stopped don't be deceived the beast might look invincible but in the end in the end there will hardly be a contest at all verse 14 they will make war against the lamb but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called Chosen and faithful followers. Now we're going to see much, much more of that victory over the coming weeks. If you know Psalm 2, this is pretty much, if you like, the visionary fulfillment of that Psalm. Psalm 2 has this verse The kings of the earth take their stands, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's what we're seeing in the vision here. But later on in Psalm 2, we read, The one enthroned in heaven just laughs. And then finally, finally, you must understand, you really must understand, says the angel, that this beast is no friend of the woman who's riding upon her. All over the world, in every nation and every people group, uh, this woman has welcomed the beast. She's thrown in her lot with the beast she's given in to its threats she's she's responded to his empty promises of prosperity but there is of course no way that the beast is going to honor those promises all the beast wants in the end is destruction it gives the woman a drunken prosperity for a while but then it exacts its price and exacts its price in the most gruesome way you could possibly imagine this is verse 16 the beasts and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I suppose this is the, the big new thing that we're learning in this chapter that compromise will destroy you. It's a new thing, but I, but I suppose it shouldn't really surprise us. This is what we find shown for us across the Bible. This is what happened to God's people in the Old Testament when they they turned away from the Lord to find power and prosperity from the nations around them. But then, of course, the nations turned on them and crushed them and sent the survivors off into exile. This is what happened in the first century, too, uh, when the Jewish people who failed to recognize Jesus as Lord threw in their lot with Rome. But then in AD 70, again, Rome utterly crushed them. This is what may happen in any generation, including our own. But our problem, I think, is that uh, we can only really imagine this happening to other people. So, for example, we hear in the news all the time, don't we, uh, stories of people who have pursued and found fame and fortune, uh, which has then destroyed them. It's almost a cliche, isn't it? In the news, think Amy Whitehouse, think Whitney Houston more recently. We might even say to ourselves as we read about all those things tut tut, they should have known better. But what we fail to see is ourselves at risk of all of this. We think, oh, what I'm doing is nothing like that. It's nothing like that. What I'm doing is just having a bit of, surely it's just harmless fun. That's why this chapter, this is, that's why Revelation chapter 17 is so important, so vital. Finally, to give us clear sight to remain faithful. Clear sight to remain faithful. Take first an example from the first century. In chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus spoke to the church in Thyatira. Now, this is what he said. He said some other things too, but this is amongst what he said. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So we've seen that there's there's a sort of self-styled prophetess in the Thyatarian church who, just like the the Jezebel of the Old Testament, is teaching things that will encourage people to go back to their old ways, to the the life and attitude of the anti-God culture around them. And in Revelation 2, Jesus warns that church very directly and plainly, you will suffer the same end as her unless you repent of her ways. Uh, but sometimes a verbal warning like that is not enough for us, is it? Uh, sometimes we need to, to know and, to, and to, to feel and to see the weight of what it looks like to get in the be- in, into bed with the culture around us. And for that, the vision of Revelation 17 would have been vitally important for the church in Thyatira. Likewise for us in 21st century forward, it's interesting. The story that, which kept coming back into my mind over, uh, over and again, over again as I was preparing this last week is the, is the Faust legend. You probably know already the basic story. Dr. Faust is a successful scholar, but he wants more. So he makes a deal with the devil uh, for further knowledge and magic powers. In return, after 24 years, the devil gets his soul. Uh, It's striking, I discovered last week week, that in the early versions of this story, uh, in his pursuit of higher knowledge, Faust physically lays aside the Holy Scriptures behind the door and under the bench and refuses anymore to be called a Dr of theology. You probably already know how much we are under huge pressure to do exactly that here in the Church of England. The Faust legend is a story which has found resonances for people uh, for over five hundred years being retold time and time again in different ways. But the story being told here in in, in Revelation seventeen is, I now think, even more powerful than that. You see, it's very easy to hear the Faust legend and and say to yourself something like this Mental note. Don't make deals with the devil. It's unlikely to go well in the end. Mental note. When someone with, with horns and a pointy tail turns up at the door one day, just say, Not today, thank you. But the frightening extra element we find in Revelation 17 is that you can end up making a deal with the devil without hardly being aware of it, without consciously entering into it. It doesn't normally look or feel like making a deal with the devil. At the time, it just feels like getting on with life. It just feels like doing things that are going to make life a little bit easier in some way or other. In other words, just like the church in Thyatira, we desperately need this vision to see the awful reality of what getting into bed with a world opposed to God really looks like. We need this deeply embedded in our thinking. So as we finish, imagine yourself back into some of the scenarios I began with this morning. So you're making choices about various things. You're making choices about your work about your career, about the time that you use, about your family and your church family. You are shaping and forming your ambitions for the future. You're making choices about relationships. We are making choices as a church family on on which issues to to let go and which issues we need to take a stand on. Well, what is the Lord Jesus saying to us through Revelation chapter 17? Well I hope should be clear by now, he's saying this. Don't be seduced. Don't become a part of what the whore riding on, on the beast is doing. Take a good, long, hard look at what compromise really looks like. Don't be deceived by how prosperous she looks, all that fine clothing and jewellery. Just look instead at her swaying around and her repulsive Drunken stupor, blood on her lips, dripping down her face. The blood of your Christian brothers and sisters. And take a good, hard look at the beast that she's cavorting around on. You see, she perhaps thinks it's just, she's just having a bit of a laugh. She may even think that she's in control of this beast. But on every one of its seven heads there is what? What? There is a crocodile smile, a sly, knowing smile as it thinks about the gruesome meal it's shortly going to enjoy. Best stick with the lamb, don't you think? Best find our refuge in the only safe verse in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 again. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray first and foremost that uh, you would help us to be rightly shocked by what we see in this chapter. Not merely shocked, but shocked in such a way that we wake up to the reality of the world around us. The reality of what it really looks like to get into bed with the culture around us. Give us wisdom, we pray, and clear sight to make the right decisions such that we remain completely and utterly faithful to you to the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.